Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back for What Happens Next, Part 2. We've got a bunch of great speakers today. Um, our first speaker is Professor Jeff Stone. He comes to us from the University of Chicago Law School, where he's a professor. He's a former dean of the law school, and he's a former provost of the University of Chicago. Our plan is to have Jeff speak for around six minutes. Uh, I may interrupt him from time to time. Um, and then we're mixing up our format a little bit. Uh, Judge Gary Feinerman can ask him some questions after that for six minutes, and then we continue on with the agenda. Okay, Jeff, fire away. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I've been asked to talk about the question of the role of the courts and the Supreme Court in particular in terms of uh, addressing some of the issues that uh, are raised and may be raised in the future with respect to this situation. Um, now, let me say that going back to the framers of our Constitution, uh, one of the greatest concerns they had is that although they believed that democracy was the best form of government possible, they understood that it was imperfect and that majorities who generally would control in a democracy um, would be tempted to do two things in particular that would undermine the aspirations of both the framers and the democracy itself. Uh, one thing would be to be somewhere between overtly hostile and, on the other end, indifferent to those groups within society who they regarded as the other, and that they would be inclined to impose uh, limitations, restrictions upon those groups that they would never think of applying to themselves, and that that was inconsistent, the framers believed, with the aspirations for democracy. A second danger was that majorities would inevitably be tempted to uh, re redo the rules by which they and their successors are selected in a way that will ensure that they remain the majority, and that this too would undermine the fundamental goals and aspirations of democracy. And so the framers relied upon the concept of judicial review in the courts and the Supreme Court in particular as an entity that would preserve those values in the face of those limitations of democracy. Um, and it was hoped that the justices of the Supreme Court, having life tenure and understanding their responsibility, um, would protect against those abuses in particular, others as well, but those abuses in particular of democracy. Now, as a law professor, I'd like to say that the Supreme Court has fulfilled that responsibility in an admirable manner over history, but in fact, it's more complicated than that. Um, and indeed, uh, for much of American history, the court, frankly, has failed in meeting that responsibility. And just to give a couple of familiar examples, um, in Plessy versus Ferguson decided in 1896, uh, the Supreme Court uh, declined to hold that racial segregation violated the Constitution. Um, this was a decision that it had come out the other way would have been extremely unpopular, and the justices basically decided to cave in this moment, and as a result, racial segregation remained in effect for another 58 years. Um, in World War I, um, the government enacted the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act of 1918, which effectively made it a crime for anyone to criticize the war or the draft, and several thousand individuals were prosecuted under those statutes and sentenced to prison terms, ranging often from 10 to 20 years in jail. The Supreme Court did not interfere with those decisions. To the contrary, it held they were consistent uh, with, the, with the First Amendment, 
and uh, enabled one of the tragic periods of free speech in American history. Uh, during World War II, of course, there was a Japanese internment um, where 120,000 people of Japanese descent in the United States were put into concentration camps, and the Supreme Court in Korematsu versus United States held that that did not violate the Constitution, a decision which in hindsight has been regarded as, as disastrous. Um, and during the McCarthy era, um, the Supreme Court again um, essentially collapsed in meeting its responsibility, upholding the, the convictions of individuals um, who were members of the Communist Party, had been members of the Communist Party, had been leaders of the Communist Party, even though they themselves actually had done nothing that should have been held, not, not to be protected by the Constitution. Um, in the years since then, uh, the Warren Court, which came into existence in 1954, was a great example of doing what the framers of the Constitution uh, aspire to. Um, the justices of the Warren Court, who came from both Republican and Democratic parties, um, were extraordinarily courageous in taking on the injustices that the framers would have been worried about. And Brown v. Board of Education, they overturned Plessy v. Ferguson and held that uh, racial segregation was unconstitutional, a, a deeply and profoundly unpopular decision. Um, in Loving v. Virginia, they held that interracial marriage was a constitutional right. Um, in the realm of voting, they held that um, one person, one vote was a constitutional requirement. They held that the, the poll tax was unconstitutional. In the realm of criminal justice, uh, in a whole range of decisions, they completely reformed American criminal justice so as to give much greater protection to African Americans and to people accused of crime. Um, and they even went so far as to hold that school prayer was unconstitutional. All of these are wildly unpopular decisions, but the justices of the Warren Court stood up to that and uh, hand, handed down these courageous decisions, uh, which basically fulfilled the, the aspirations and the goals of the framers. In the half century since then, I have to say, I think that with a few exceptions, uh, one exception is the Nixon v. United States case, another is the Pentagon Papers case, but with a few exceptions only, the court has increasingly uh, failed, I think, to meet that responsibility. And at the moment, we have a Supreme Court with five justices, all appointed by Republican presidents, who I think have already demonstrated their unwillingness to stand up to um, President Trump and their unwillingness to uh, protect American democracy. So the, the, latter, the example of the, of the political situation was the court's decision, 5-4, with all five Republican-appointed justices in the majority, holding that political gerrymandering is not unconstitutional. Um, a truly shocking... Uh, Jeff, let me interrupt you because uh, we're into Gary's time. Uh, Judge Gary Feinerman's on the line. He comes to us from the Federal District Court in Illinois. Gary, do you want to um, ask some questions to bring it to some of the issues that will come forth in, in the days ahead? Yeah, they may or may not, but these are at least um, uh, hypotheticals that, that could happen. So, Jeff, uh, the day before the scheduled Ohio primary, which, which it's hard to believe was only 13 days ago, Governor DeWine sought a judicial order uh, allowing the state to postpone the primary until June 2nd. The state trial judge denied the governor's request, and yet the governor delayed the primary anyway. Now, maybe you don't think, or one wouldn't think this is a big deal because perhaps DeWine was right and the judge was wrong. The Ohio Supreme Court retroactively blessed DeWine's action, and perhaps you think that DeWine doesn't, it doesn't strike you as, as one who has authoritarian tendencies or hostility to the courts. But at a time like this, how likely is it that governors or chief executives of other governmental units 
will defy court orders not to their liking. And what happens uh, when that happens? What, what will happen uh, if, in fact, that comes uh, to play? Well, first of all, in fairness to DeWine, he, what he did was not really uh, a violation of the judicial order. The judge said, I don't have the authority to do this. Not that you don't have the authority to do this. Um, but uh, had the judge decided that it would be a violation of Ohio constitutional law for DeWine to do this, and he did it anyway, that would have posed a much more direct confrontation. Um, you know, basically, we expect and hope that elected officials will comply with judicial decisions about the state of the law and about the Constitution. And for the most part, historically, that's been the case. Um, if that were to happen, let's, let's say that the, the judge in Ohio had found that, that DeWine did not have the power to do this, and it would violate state law for him to do it, and he did it anyway. Um, and let's suppose that the Ohio Supreme Court had, had agreed with the lower court judge. Um, then if DeWine went ahead and did it anyway, there'd be a crisis that does not have a simple solution. Um, you know, who actually gets to decide this question? Presumably it's the state legislature that passes the laws. And in this situation, the legislature had enacted a law that set a particular date, and no one had anticipated this problem. So they hadn't put into the statute that, in fact, the date can be delayed without changing the statute. Um, so the question then would be, if the, if the governor directly disobeyed a court order, well, the court could, of course, hold him in contempt. Um, and, uh, you know, what would happen in that situation is not clear. But this would be the kind of political constitutional crisis that we are not really prepared to deal with. Um, it would be as if when Richard Nixon was ordered by the Supreme Court to turn over the tapes, if he had said, screw you, I'm not going to do this. Um, and happily, that didn't happen. He, he complied with the law. But in this situation, presumably, the court could hold the, the governor or whoever else was doing this in contempt of court. And then the question is, what happens next? And the simple reality is we don't know. This just doesn't happen very often. Second question, uh, Jeff. Several states have imposed restrictions on persons arriving from other states. Rhode Island, for example, requires any visitor from New York to self-quarantine for 14 days, with the penalty for noncompliance being up to 90 days in jail. Um, what if Rhode Island flat-out bans any New Yorker from entering the state and enforces that prohibition at the border with state and local police? Would that be a legal exercise of Rhode Island's police power? Well, this is a great question. Um, the Constitution has been understood from the very beginning as guaranteeing as an essential constitutional right uh, the freedom of, of individuals um, to travel and to move from one state to another. And the Supreme Court, in a number of cases, has held that uh, efforts on the part of various state governments to uh, put obstacles in the freedom of individuals to move from one state to another or to travel from one state to another are unconstitutional. And the court has basically held that such laws are unconstitutional unless they serve a, a compelling government interest. And the question here is, well, what makes or doesn't make something a compelling interest in this context? Um, the, in the rest of the country, the, the, the percentage uh, of um, individuals um, who have been found to be ill with the coronavirus is about one in th th 3,300, I think. And in New York, it's about one in 400. So the issue there is, 
can a state say that someone who's almost 10 times as likely to carry the, the disease with them be barred from the state? Is that a compelling state interest? Um, clearly, if they knew that the individual had been diagnosed um, and it was a serious illness, they presumably could block that person from entering the state. Although it's an interesting problem, because if they do that, then the person has to stay in, in New York. And that means he's dangerous to people in New York. So you're not actually making the world safer by doing this. You're just pushing somebody who's dangerous into one state rather than your own state. Um, but my guess is that at a certain level of, of probability, a court would say that a state can block uh, individuals from entering the state if they have a serious illness of this sort um, to a degree that makes it extremely dangerous to their own citizens. Again, what those numbers mean is not clear. Um, Jeff, if, if one of four, yeah, time out. Sorry. Time's out. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Gary, as well. Our next speaker is Simon James. He comes from us from the United Kingdom. He is CEO of the Kim's Hospital. Simon, go ahead. Thanks, Larry, and uh, good afternoon to you all. Um, Larry asked me if I'd come on and talk about what's happening in the 51st state, um, in particular in relation to our National Health Service. Um, so just to give, put things in context here, um, the majority of healthcare in the UK is delivered through um, the National Health Service. It has a £130 billion budget. Um, the independent sector, so that would be uh, private healthcare, um, the market size is around 6.3 billion, so considerably smaller, as you can see. Um, at the moment in the UK, with regards uh, COVID-19, um, the, the general view is that we're around uh, 10 days to two weeks behind um, some of the worst hit countries um, in Europe. And um, some of the measures that have been put in place in the UK are following know in, in that sort of same cycle so um, last week um, on Monday um, we uh, had this um, social distancing um, which was put in place so everybody's uh, self-isolating uh, we're not allowed to leave our homes and it's for um, essential work um, or to visit the shops or for health care um, and prior to that it was voluntary and most people um, most people uh, followed it, but um, as ever, with uh, when you've got 65 million people, a number of people thought it was acceptable to go and have barbecues on the beach and use the time out. Um, so social distancing is now in place. Um, the government's put a big stimulus package in place, um, and um, uh, this week extended it to self-employed. So uh, if you're an employee, they... Uh, uh, and uh, rather than being made redundant, um, the government's offering to pick up 80% of your wages up to around uh, $3,000 a month. Um, and they've done a bunch of other things like uh, delaying business taxes, delaying account filing. Um, but um, you all watch what happens uh, in the stock market here, and I think um, it's still uh, in for quite a turbulent time. Um, just specifically turning to the healthcare sector, um, the NHS, um, it's actually the eighth largest employer in the world. We've got 1.4 million staff working in it. It really is um, an absolute a beam off. Um, when it's uh, operating normally, we have nearly a million primary care visits a day uh, and around 94,000 uh, emergency inpatients and around uh, just under 50,000 elective procedures performed a day. So it really is a, 
a massive organization. So what's been going on in the NHS? Um, well, um, all the non-essential work's been switched off, uh, and uh, there's been a big focus on creating extra intensive care beds um, and recruiting or re-recruiting -re people who uh, have left the NHS so they could have called out to the 55,000 nurses and doctors that left in the last couple of years, 15,000 that have come back. Um, they put a big call out for volunteers, and 500,000 people have volunteered uh, to help look after the 1.5 million vulnerable adults and children who basically have been told you need to stay at home for the next 12 weeks. Um, the government struck a deal with the independent sector. I mean, it was quite incredible. It took... Uh, took basically a week. It's a £1.2 billion deal um, where effectively they have taken over all the independent sector hospitals uh, for the next 13 weeks. So they are covering all of our costs. Uh, the hospital I run is a 100-bedded uh, independent acute hospital in Kent, which is a county down in the southeast of England. has a population of 1.8 million. Um, our uh, specific tasking is um, to uh, turn one of our wards into a uh, stroke rehabilitation ward, turn another ward into uh, a immunosuppressed ward for cancer patients, offer um, urgent uh, outpatient cancer work, uh, and also turn our theatres into uh, urology. Simon, just to interrupt you a second. Um, sure, Larry. Given uh, the crisis... Um, do you, are you currently overrun? Do you expect to be overrun? Um, are you, do you think you have the resources necessary to handle um, a substantial number of people coming in at once? So our, our particular hospital, um, they're not going to use us for COVID patients, so we should be fine. I think if that's a general question regarding the National Health Service, there is a significant fear that it is going to be overrun, although the government has been trying very hard to flatten the curve. Um, specifically, they, they're, they're actually opening uh, three new hospitals, one in London, one in Birmingham, and one in Manchester. Uh, the one in London is going to have 4,000 beds in it, uh, and it's due to open this week. Um, so I think there is a great fear that um, intensive care beds will be overrun. We don't have enough ventilators. We don't have enough uh, protective equipment. Um, so, you know, if the system is going to be uh, severely tested, Larry, yes. Simon, thank you. Uh, moving on to Peggy. Peggy Hamburg joins us. She's the former commissioner of the FDA and former assistant director of the NIH's allergy and infectious disease. Peggy, go ahead. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Um, so I want to address um, the key areas of action needed to be taken to address the COVID-19 crisis and the role that FDA plays in them in the six minutes I have, really focusing on four areas, diagnostics, drugs, vaccines, and shortages. Clearly, we have to stop infection. We have to care for the sick and limit deaths. We have to reduce social and economic damage. And we have to use science and technology to help us in all of those domains. And FDA has a key role to play, both in terms of, of really helping to make science-based decisions and developing and making available the medical tools needed. Diagnostics is a critical area. We've heard a lot about it since the beginning of this 
unfolding pandemic. Um, and clearly, uh, the response got off to a, a far slower response, uh, response than we would have wanted uh, because of limits and availability of diagnostics. Hopefully, we will see that improve. There are two types of diagnostics that are important, the antigen test, which enables you to recognize acute infection, and the antibody test that lets you recognize who's been infected but has developed an antibody response and presumably is uh, protected from future response. Most of the work so far in the available tests are the antigen, the acute infection, but, but we'll be seeing more with respect to antibody tests, and that's going to be very important because that can be part of the strategy of knowing um, for whom it's safe to go back uh, into more congregate settings, into to the workforce potentially, and um, starts to give us a sense of also uh, how many people may have been infected without us even being aware. What we are starting to see more of as well are rapid tests that can be done quickly and tests that can be done outside of the healthcare system, um, even at home, rather than having to send it off for weeks um, or days uh, in order to get an answer. Um, we may, however, be seeing problems as new diagnostics get approved with scale-up manufacturing and then availability of the reagents necessary to do those tests. So there are going to be bumps along the road as we see the world of diagnostics for COVID-19 expand. Drugs, a lot of activity going on, and we will likely see some potential therapeutics um, available before we'll see vaccines. There are efforts to repurpose old existing drugs against this novel coronavirus and also new R&D um, for new products. There are antivirals, there are immune modulators, there's antibody-based therapies, and of course there's chloroquine, which we've been hearing a lot about, which was actually originally developed as an anti-malarial drug um, and is effective against certain autoimmune conditions. Let me mention, if I have time, a couple of the promising drugs, um, but this doesn't mean that they will really work. But there, you've probably heard about remdesivir, an anti-HIV drug originally, which is currently in trials, and we may have results really in a matter of, of weeks to give the, the early indications of whether uh, they work, what role they might play. Um, there's another class of drugs which, which are important for modulating the immune system and uh, Seralumab is an example of that, and that's uh, to address the problem that it seems that, that much of the serious illness and death is associated um, not so much with the presence of the virus, but the damage that is caused by the activation of the immune system um, damaging the lungs and, and, and all of the subsequent complications. And so this acts really to uh, sort of slow down or modulate the immune system from cascading out of control when faced with this new coronavirus. And then there are the, the antibody-based therapies, which are really quite promising that can effectively neutralize the virus. Um, some of those um, are being developed now, which involve taking what's called convalescent antibodies um, from people who were infected and injecting them in to protect uh, uh, patients and, and help 
uh, immune system that isn't mobilized to fight the virus, and then drugs that are actually being developed um, that will enable these same antibodies to be available and advances in science are making it possible to have those antibodies uh, persist in the body longer than the, the antibodies harvested from previously infected people. That, those studies are probably going to take a little bit longer, but by summer we may be hearing about some results. Um, and there's a lot of other activity. Vaccines, a lot of candidates in the pipeline, um, different types, the more traditional protein-based um, inactivated virus and live attenuated kinds of viruses, and then uh, newer classes of, of vaccines, uh, nucleic acid vaccines, uh, DNA vaccines, and mRNA vaccines. Um, and uh, you've probably heard about the Moderna vaccine, which is already in human safety trials, the most rapid uh, movement from the initial posting of the genome of the novel coronavirus to um, injection of a new vaccine candidate into a person. It was nine weeks um, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of hope, but we need to do the testing. And you begin with vaccines with safety testing um, and then move into uh, the large-scale clinical trials um, to show protection against exposure. And the plan is to, to try to really telescope some of the stages traditionally of vaccine testing so that we can get answers more quickly. But realistically, you've heard Dr. Fauci and others talk about, um, you know, 18 months. Um, that would be rapid for traditional vaccine development, but everybody's working together to try to uh, really streamline the vaccine and drug development processes and actually regulatory authorities from different countries are coming together to align their approaches to help enable um, more speed and efficiency as well. Um, I did want to also mention shortages because I think we're going to be hearing more about that. Shortages of, of drugs and medical products um, such as PPE um, against COVID-19, but also medications needed for routine but serious medical needs. And that's because the active pharmaceutical ingredients in most drugs used in this country are coming from either China or India, 80%, the bulk coming from China. And then many of the drugs taken here and medical devices used are coming in whole or in part from other countries with complex supply chains all of which have been dislocated in some way. So many companies, as this began, reported that they had two to three months of reserve supply of materials needed, both the active pharmaceutical ingredients and the, um, the developed drugs. But as this continues, we may start to see some significant uh, shortages. I already mentioned the shortages for reagents Peggy. for diagnostic kits. Peggy, we're out of time. Thank you. We'll come back to you in the Q and A period. Okay, uh, Dr. Sherman. This is Dr. Hello, Sherman. Good he's day. a professor at Northwestern, and he's also my doctor. Fire away, Eric. Hi. Uh, good afternoon. So, a lot of questions. 
in terms of if you actually get sick, one of the key things is to stay hydrated and to use Tylenol for a fever. But if you're really feeling crummy, if you get this, don't assume, first of all, that you have it. There are a lot of other viruses out there. Currently, of all the testing in Illinois, we only have about 13% that are positive. So the other 87% are something else. So you should absolutely call your doctor, particularly if you're feeling poorly. Um, treating yourself is quite difficult. You shouldn't, probably. Uh, it's really supportive care, aside from the hospitalized patients at this point. The trials that Peggy was alluding to so far are in process, um, and most of the trials are out of the teaching hospitals uh, for some of the cutting-edge drugs. Uh, unfortunately, we've been getting early reports that, like hydroxychloroquine and other things that have been making a lot of reports, are not so effective. So we'll see about remdesivir and the others. Again, uh, the key for most people is going to be supportive care. So if you're getting progressively worse, that's when you need to be hospitalized. In terms of testing, we'd like to test everybody, of course, but the supplies have been really quite limited. Uh, and they've been restricted, in, at least in Illinois, to people who are symptomatic uh, and at risk. Uh, symptoms being a fever generally is one of the telltale things that people were looking for. But to anchor the risk, luckily in Illinois at least, we only have about 1.3% death rate of the known cases, which is probably much smaller uh, in terms of the actual risk of death. That's not to say that people aren't getting quite ill, and the risk of the system becoming overwhelmed is the real risk to everybody. Because if we run out of the ability to place people on ventilators and things like that, then our death rate might match more like what Italy's experience is, unfortunately. Uh, in terms of infecting your family, it is possible, though the data out of China looks like it's harder to do than we originally had thought, uh, uh, less than 50% chance. That being said, the World Health Organization puts out guidelines which really are fairly straightforward and are, can be done. Uh, later, Larry, I can circulate that to you to circulate to everybody if you'd like. Um, the time to go to the hospital is if you're getting worse. Certainly any trouble breathing, coughing up blood, uh, these are times to go to the uh, emergency room. Uh, and in, at least in Chicago, Chicago Fire Department, in conjunction with all the area hospitals, are now no longer just taking to the local hospital, but rather to the hospital with an available negative pressure room. Uh, this is, again, a coordination that's happening within the city itself. Um, ideally, if you had to go, uh, you would want to go to a teaching hospital, in my opinion, but, of course, I'm biased in that regard. Uh, if you're 50 uh, should, and you're getting worse, you should go to the hospital. Uh, that was a question that we um, put in there. Uh, unfortunately, age is not particularly protective. That being said, the majority of deaths are associated with the uh, weighted towards the getting older. Uh, the key with any illness is hydration. Uh, you can take advantage of a passive transporter in the colon, uh, which uh, uses water and sodium and glucose to get water into your body. Uh, this is the basis of Pedialyte and the World Health Organization hydration formula. Is Those are really quite excellent. Uh, alternatively, you could do half water with half regular Gatorade, uh, and that works pretty well as well. Uh, with the fevers and the sweats that occur, people lose a tremendous amount of uh, fluid, 
much more than you would expect. And so the poor man's barometer of your hydration status is the color of the urine, uh, uh, for example, pale yellow to clear urine means that you're doing a pretty good job. Um, if you're having uh, respiratory issues, uh, again, your physician can hopefully help you, uh, but certainly if you're having any shortness of breath and struggling, then you should head toward the hospital. Um, and you Eric, I'm going to cut you off there. Um, our next speaker is Michael Moscow, who is the former CEO of the Chicago Fed. Michael, are you on the call? I am, yes. Oh, good. Fire away, Michael. <laughs> okay, I'm going to talk about three topics. Uh, one, the current state of the economy. Second, the actions by the Federal Reserve. And third, the next steps and challenges for the Federal Reserve. So recessions are not officially dated until they end, but I believe that we are already in a very deep recession, hopefully not a long recession. This is not a typical recession. It was not caused by the private sector losing confidence and stopping spending or excesses in the economy. It was caused by the virus and the fact that the government is mandating that people stay home and business firms shut down. The economy was quite strong in the beginning of the year. Consumer spending was strong. Employment was high. The unemployment rate was 3.5%, but the virus changed that dramatically. We got a taste of how bad the data will look in the future last week when the unemployment insurance claims were published. The weekly claim skyrocketed to 3 million persons filing for unemployment insurance from about 250,000 the previous week. So the published data will be ugly. When we get the spread of the virus under control, economic activity will return. In the interim, the $2 trillion congressional package and the Federal Reserve actions are clearly appropriate. They will help reduce the negative impact of the virus on the economy, but it is not possible to completely offset the impact of the massive shutdown of so much of the economy. When we get the spread of the virus under control, economic activity will return. Second quarter GDP will show a significant decline. The key unknown is what the third and fourth quarters will look like. At this point, it's unknowable to answer that question because it depends on the progress we make on dealing with the virus. Let me turn now to actions by the Federal Reserve. The Fed has been very active. In typical central bank activities, they reduce the Fed funds target to zero. In quantitative easing, they've initiated targeted increases in holdings of treasuries and agency-backed securities on their balance sheet of $700 billion. But this past Monday, they changed that and said they will buy significant amounts of securities across the curve, whatever is needed, no caps on purchases. And they have dr dramatically increased their balance sheet over the past two weeks by nearly $940 billion to $5.25 trillion. Just as a point of reference, when I retired from the Fed back in 07, the balance sheet was $800 billion. The second area they've been active is establishing a group of seven special, special loan or guaranteed programs under emergency provisions of the Federal Reserve Act. These programs require approval of the Secretary of the Treasury, and Treasury provides an equity investment to cover any losses that the Fed incurs. In addition, the equity investment enables the Fed to lever up 10 to 1, 
So, for example, a $30 billion equity investment by Treasury enables the Fed to lend $300 billion. Here are the areas that are covered by the new programs. Large employers, asset-backed securities, primary dealers, commercial paper, money market mutual funds, and a separate program not yet formulated for small and medium-sized businesses. Some of these programs are similar to programs used during the financial crisis. Others are new. Particularly important is that the legislation enacted last week gave Treasury another $454 billion to backstop losses for the Fed emergency programs. At 10 to 1, that translates to over $4 trillion in loans and guarantees. These numbers are obviously extraordinary. Let me turn now to the third topic, next steps and challenges for the Fed. We have to recognize the Fed has to be flexible here. They're in uncharted waters. They don't have all the answers, and mid-course corrections will be required. So here are six areas that I wanted to mention. First, the Fed has forcefully used its full range of its tools. The Fed funds raise at zero bound. Quantitative easing will be used extensively. As I said, um, they will increase as needed. They, have, uh, they will use forward guidance, and the $454 billion backstop by Treasury will be available to them. So the Fed will not run out of ammunition. They will use existing and new tools extensively. The third area is the Fed will be under significant pressure to provide loans to states and municipalities whose finances are affected by the pandemic. We need to watch this area carefully because a number of states and cities were under financial stresses before the pandemic. So we should not allow these programs to morph into programs that deal with long-term structural deficits. Fourth area is negative rates. The Fed is at a zero bound, so it's appropriate to ask whether they will move to negative interest rates. The Fed has a strong aversion to negative rates, so I think it's unlikely. Obviously, we never say never. The fifth area is how to reduce accommodation, or how do they pare back the stimulus? And the Fed has had problems reducing its quantitative easing stimulus when appropriate. Recall the taper tantrum when Bernanke headed the Fed and the strong market reaction to that. This problem will not go away in the future. In fact, it will be more difficult. The fifth area, and in conclusion, is what I call the deflation-inflation question. We have lower rates of inflation, or what we call, we will have lower rates of inflation, or what we call disinflation, but I doubt that we will have deflation. On the other hand, we have to look at inflation as well. Inflation is running below the Fed's 2% target, so very high inflation is unlikely. But recognizing the extraordinary monetary stimulus, the risk is not zero. We need to monitor both inflation and deflation carefully. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Uh, our next speaker is Andy Bloom. Andy is uh, a casino owner, real estate entrepreneur, and he's also interested in online education. Fire away, Andy. Hey, Larry, thanks. Um, So just quickly on the real estate side, let me start there. Uh, There's really too many variables to really uh, figure out what's going on right now. The the markets are clearly frozen. Um, No one really knows who's going to pay rent. and uh, uh, and how much rent they're going to pay. So 
so in the short to medium term, looking beyond this period, uh, I think there's some generalities we, we can make. Uh, cap rates are certainly going to go up. Multiples are going to go down, uh, regardless of where interest rates uh, are and ultimately settle down. Um, the debt clearly uh, financing proceeds will be lower and spreads clearly uh, will be uh, wider. Um, the, uh, I think replacement costs, which everyone always looks at, construction costs are coming down already. Uh, we have a couple developments where we're getting better pricing. Um, I expect land to decline as well. Uh, and I expect rents, depending on asset class, to come down as well. So in general, uh, pricing in the short to, in the short to medium, medium term will come down. But this is now really the third crisis that I've seen over the last, you know, 30 years. Oh, um, and let's not forget, people have short memories. I expect in the long term, uh, multiples and cap rates will, will go back to their, uh, the, the, their aggressive levels, particularly if interest rates stay low, um, if I had the best. Certainly those with capital uh, will have a great opportunity and there will be a tremendous amount of uh, distressed debt out there. Uh, casinos. We own four regional casinos. They're all shut right now. Uh, we are paying our employees and most of the private companies are paying their employees. The public companies, interestingly enough, seem not to be paying their employees. They, they seem to have uh, 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 other issues, uh, more serious issues. Uh, there's been a fair amount of operating companies that, that have leased their properties. They've been spun off from, from different casino companies. They have debt as well as significant leases. They're certainly going to be in trouble, uh, so in our opinion. Uh, the regional casinos, we think, will fare better than the Las Vegas casinos. Um, the, just because you don't have to travel, people still want to be entertained and have fun. Uh, that's demonstrated. We have an online casino business. It's been very strong, record days. Uh, and believe it or not, people are betting on Russian table tennis. It's virtually the only thing out there that people can bet on from a sports perspective. Um, Andy, thank you. That's, nope. Um, All right. our, our, Thanks. I'll come back to you. That was yeah. fast. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, our next speaker is Mike Kinetter. Uh He's the former dean of the business school at the University of Wisconsin. Go ahead, Mike. Thank you, Larry. Uh, Larry, you asked me to talk about the impact on the U.S. higher education sector, which, as all of you know, as important stakeholders of that sector, it is an island of stability, uh, generally speaking, in an otherwise dynamic world. Um, the near-term impacts on higher education have been um, all negative. Uh, obviously, the closure of campuses, uh, universities will have to refund uh, the prorated room and board that they would have collected uh, for the remainder of the spring semester. In the UW system, you know, we're talking about roughly $80 million getting refunded. Some of that uh, would have been offset by costs, but certainly not all of it. Um, and then moving courses online, of course, is the really big challenge for a lot of institutions. I think some of the very well-funded private universities have an easier time with that. Uh, at a big institution like Wisconsin, getting all faculty to do that at the drop of a hat, it's been a, a pretty big lift. Um, whether there will be tuition discounts is an open question. Certainly, 
there's plenty of mail coming into administrators' uh, inboxes uh, asking about that. Then, of course, you have the suspension of events. Uh, we should all be watching the Elite Eight today, but we're not. Uh, the NC2A will be out close to a billion dollars just from the March Madness tournament. Um, some of that is insured. Uh, of course, we love this at Wisconsin. Uh, I'm sure you all know the Badgers won Joe Lenardi's simulated bracketology tournament on ESPN. Uh, campus visits are, of course, being canceled now. So kids are in the process of trying to decide where they want to go next fall. Uh, and so a lot of that admissions and recruitment will have to move online as well. And the schools that do that effectively could come out as winners in this. There's still a lot of uncertainty about the fall semester, I would say, and whether everyone will just go back to normal. Uh, and certainly for institutions in the short term, the really big risk factors are for those institutions that have a significant amount of revenue in international students and also have very those who would have very limited online capability because people will care a lot about whether, you know, if we have to go back to this mode again, if there's a second wave of uh, coronavirus, um, you know, what kind of education will I get? There was, of course, money for higher ed in the stimulus bill, uh, but not nearly as much as uh, people in the industry were seeking. Uh, about $14 billion of a, of a hoped-for $50 billion. Half of that will go to emergency student aid. Hey, the Mike, more interesting issues... Mike, do you, is the online education, is it going to be effective? Are kids going to learn anything? You know, it's interesting. I have a daughter who's a freshman at Emory right now. And uh, it's a little clunky out of the gate, but I think uh, my daughter spends, you know, the time required to learn stuff. Uh, her chemistry lab isn't, isn't going that well from home, as you might imagine. We're focused more on culinary arts, and she has picked up an elective in pool. So um, we've been playing a lot of pool. What, anyway, um, the interesting thing to me is the long term, you know, and, and so, you know, the way I think about it is, Will this crisis finally tip the balance away from what I would call the immovable object of higher education bureaucracy toward the unstoppable force of technology-enabled distribution of content and engagement? And I think there actually is a pretty good chance. Uh, you know, it's very hard to bet against the immovable object. It really hasn't changed much. As you know, the, the great universities today were the great universities 100 years ago. And we haven't really changed how we do things a lot, but I think there's going to be an enormous bifurcation of the sector into the elite private and public research universities, which will only get stronger from this uh, due to the appreciation of research and science that everyone will feel probably on the other side of this. And so the 100 to 150, you know, research one universities, I would call them uh, in the U.S., will come out of this stronger they will do things the way they do them now, but there's about another thousand universities in the United States that confer four-year degrees, and that marketplace will be ripe for disruption. And so I think the real question is, who's going to deliver the content, uh, provide the content for basic education and credentials that lead to a productive career for all of the students in that sector right now? And I think that's going to be a mix of solutions. You know, part of it will probably be Andy's casinos will open up for uh, credentials in probability and data science. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, some of the thousand in this category, uh, and again, these aren't research universities, they're four-year colleges, uh, public and private. 
they will survive largely intact. They'll probably have more tech-enabled content than they do today. And I think those with great locations in real estate will be in a decent position to continue to make a go of it. And people will pay the, the higher rate to do that. Some of this market Mike, is probably you. going to be served by tech from the elite colleges, too. Thank you, Mike. Our next speaker is David mm-hmm. Snyderman. Uh, he's Global Head of Credit and Fixed Income at Magnetar. Go ahead, Dave. Thanks, Larry, and thanks for organizing. Uh, Larry asked me to talk about the structured credit markets. So, you know, while the pandemic is obviously unex- unexpected, the initial phase of the credit market dislocation has looked somewhat typical. And so it, it usually starts with the equity markets going down and the VIX going up. And within a week or so of that happening, most corporates draw down on their revolvers. And they do this because they're all based on incurrence tests instead of maintenance tests. And as corporations can't predict the future, they, they want to get as much cash on their balance sheet as possible. For structured credit, after that happens, two, two events normally uh, trigger the sell-off. First is mark-to-market on leverage facilities. So as the banks start to get squeezed for cash, they go out and they mark-to-market everything they provide leverage on. And the second is redemptions in funds. Right, and and in this time we saw more redemptions in mutual funds than we would have expected. But redemptions in funds always cause selling pressure. So pretty quickly the structured credit markets break down. And what's a little less intuitive, or either either counter or even counterintuitive, is what's actually sold uh, at first blush. And so usually the safest assets are what's sold immediately. So when you think about the structured credit market, the large majority of the capital structure is AAA rated. So take a CLO, for instance, 70 to 80% of a CLO is AAA rated. And so last Sunday night was really the first big sales we saw due to redemptions. And so we saw about three or $4 billion on a Sunday night for sale with, with quick settlements. So usually you settle for cash in three days, they needed the cash in two days, right? And, and so when you, when you see all the AAA paper start to trade, those become very interesting for funds that, that still have capital. There's really three focus items for structured credit investments, right? And, and Michael mentioned first is the wide range of government stimulus that focuses on fixing the markets. So when we think about govern, government stimulus, we usually think about the government trying to do one of two things, either protecting employment or protecting housing, right? And after the programs are announced, then what we really try to look at is first the forgotten sectors. So things like mortgage REITs today, right, are under a tremendous amount of stress, but there was nothing really in, in the bills to help them yet, right? Or we think about the unintended consequences of what happens. So things like mortgage origination, you know, where there's extremely high refinancing rates today, those mortgage originators, there's, the, the government's created this large basis where they need to have a lot of cash on their balance sheet. So they originate, they lock in rates for consumers, and they hedge with, with forward securities. Those forward securities that the government buys rapidly are just gaining value every day. So the, the originators have to post more and more cash over time. Right? So, so th- that's where the stresses in the marketplace come in, and that's usually where structured credit investors find their best opportunities. Uh, before the call, Alan asked me, you know, will we talk about what's different in this one than two years ago? You know, far less fraud in the in the system, or feels like far less fraud in the system, and 
what we're really focused on is longer term unemployment. And that's what's that's what's really hard to predict. And so there's two types of investments that come out of this. First is AAA investments, where we think that there's real cushion right before we lose money. And second is convergence trades that usually they used to use a lot of leverage. And now you can put on for with much less leverage to get the required rate of return. So that's things like convertible securities are now getting cheaper. Uh, SPACs are trading below their, their treasury values. CLO AAAs have a large margin of safety. And I, I think my time is up or very close up. Dave, thank you so much. Um, our next speaker is Harry Robinson. He's my oldest friend. We met when we were three years old. He is currently chairman of the client committee of McKinsey's board of directors. Fire away, Harry. Uh, thanks, Larry, and good afternoon, friends. Um, let me start with lessons from China, where we have a thousand consultants on the ground who are mostly fully busy again. When sudden drastic measures were introduced across all of China, it was like chemotherapy for the economy. It killed the spread of COVID quickly, but it left a lot of collateral damage as well, especially for the small and medium-sized enterprises that didn't have access to government funding. Government subsidies have been focused on production, agriculture, and logistics, uh, allowing the SMEs to basically get splattered. We expect they're going to bounce back, but there's already talk about how much of a resurgence we're going to see in some of what are conceived as risky businesses now, wet markets, spas, and gyms. Cash is king. My partner who runs our office in China said no one has paid any receivables since Chinese New Year's. Rents are, are being renegotiated or are just going unpaid. The impact across sectors is varied, as you'd expect. Um, travel and tourism is dead, although cargo is doing fine for logistics companies. Amusement parks, concerts, movies, these are all in the trough, and there's going to be ownership changes in these sectors that are most heavily hit. Real estate is tough for all the reasons uh, enumerated by Ron Bernstein last week. Business restarts have largely been influenced by labor access. Ex-urban mines and processing facilities where whole villages provide the labor base are reopening really quickly because they had few cases to begin with, there's no inbound travel, and they know exactly where everyone has been. In the cities, much manufacturing relies on migrant labor, a group that's distrusted and heavily affected by uh, COVID post-Chinese New Year. Um, automotive is sort of an in-between uh, from the manufacturing standpoint. They're sort of back, but they're also impacted by the complexity of their supply chain, some of which is gone or still inoperative. Interestingly, restaurant workers who were fired in January went to work as last mile delivery workers, and they don't want to come back to their old jobs. And then as we think about uh, the U.S. and Western economies, digital channels are winning across different sectors and now are a core part of resiliency strategy for every company that has uh, survived this, uh, this downturn. A couple differences to keep in mind about China. The combination of tech platforms like Alibaba and an authoritarian governmental model allows China to leverage technology to provide transparency on higher-risk locations and to provide current trusted uh, current health status and badging to citizenry um, that's being helpful in supporting the restart of the economy. For example, restaurants in Beijing are open. When you walk in the door of a restaurant, you get a temperature check, and you get checked out on an app that has tracked your travel over the last uh, six weeks. If you're allowed into the restaurant, you know that everybody else in the restaurant has passed the same check as you have. Secondly, a big portion of the Chinese economy is state-owned enterprises that aren't likely to go bankrupt right away. They feel a patriotic duty for business continuity, and so they'll help to bolster the economy. And then the third thing we're thinking about is saving rates in China relative to Western economies have been high for families for a long time, and the family structure is still top-heavy because the one-child policy legacy is uh, carrying through. 
As a result, cash handouts to the population aren't nearly as important as a policy measure in China as they are in other places. And instead, what we're seeing is coupons going out to incent people to return to traditional uh, B2C kinds of activities. Let me turn to the shape of the recovery, the depth of the down and the shape of the recovery, because Larry asked about U versus V. We think two big factors are going to shape the downturn in the recovery. The first is the quality of public health response, and the second is the effectiveness of governments and fiscal policy interventions. If you imagine a three-by-three matrix, I'm a consultant, I can't help it, think about those as the two axes. Our middle case envisions a pretty effective public health response, but which includes at least regional resurgence of the virus over time, and a partially effective set of policy interventions, sufficient to avoid a banking crisis, but not sufficient to turbocharge the recovery. In this scenario, we've got the U.S. GDP down by 8.5% in 2020 and not returning to pre-crisis levels until Q1 of 2023. We recognize it, but this is a far more significant drop than any down we've seen since World War II. On the questions of how deep, how long, and how quick the recovery, because the course of the pandemic influences business activity, it's important to look at public health and economic metrics for, to think about all three of those levers. For depth of the drop, we're watching the absolute number of cases, geographic distribution, time to implementing social distancing after community transition is confirmed, transmissions confirmed, and the level of cuts in spending on durable goods and extent of travel reduction. For duration of the down, the public health metrics have been well covered, things like rate of change in cases, evidence of virus seasonality, utilization of hospital beds. On the economic side, like Michael said, rate of change in unemployment filings might be the economic metric to watch. And then for shape of the recovery, we're looking for an integration of effective public health measures into the way resumed business activity uh, unfolds and looking for evidence of mutation and reinfection. On the business side, we're going to be watching the bounce back by sector in the countries that are hit earliest. In terms of specific sectors, which Larry asked about, we see commercial aerospace, air travel and tourism, oil and gas and insurance as both hard hit and with little potential for a near term bounce back, whereas real estate, which is getting killed, at least has potential to come back more quickly. We think the issue for real estate is more likely to be about the future of work and what aspects of where we work or how we work that we're seeing unfold going through this pandemic are gonna stick with us on the backside. One last word on how management teams are coping with this because most of our clients are large corporations. Almost all corporations have been quick to focus on the health and welfare of their people. It doesn't mean they aren't doing layoffs and furloughs and compensation reductions. That's in the playbook already for the hardest hit companies but it means that the internal crisis management machine is spun up and working on employee health and safety for everyone. One thing that's different about this crisis though, is that every executive has to worry about the health issues that affect their employee base and their families. They also have to focus on how to do their core work from home or in some non-traditional setup. And they have to give thought to how the economy is going, when it comes back, um, is gonna come back different from the business landscape they left before. It's hard for a CEO to run a hard charging cash and resilience operation while also managing sort of the daily uh, drumbeat of these health and social issues. We've already seen companies whose downside scenarios are not nearly negative enough or long enough, who show overconfidence in the quality of their uh, cash control systems, who assume that traditional fixed costs can't be eliminated or made variable, and who are still showing a level of civility towards their trade partners that fundamentally underestimates the existential nature of this crisis on their business. There are likely to be significant corporate failures in the next uh, uh, months in most sectors, and the companies that can dedicate and focus ACE talent um, without distraction on cash management and resilience early, we think have the best chance to come through this thing.
Thanks, Larry. Thank you, Harry. Uh, Boris Vladimirov is a proprietary trader. He's going to talk to us about emerging markets. Go ahead, Boris. Hi. Um, okay, so um, I, I want to talk about several things. One is the trajectory of the epidemics, the shocks uh, on EM, uh, the policy response, and then something on, on the assets valuations and what has happened. So on trajectory of epidemics, I mean, this is a function that is a decreasing, basically it's a problem that is a decreasing function of time, both in terms of epidemics and macro shock. Um, there, are, um, there are two basic trajectories in the end um, that may be slightly different from what we're going to see in the West and U.S. Uh, number one would be EMs that very early and very um, actively suppressed the epidemic. They may see a second wave in October. Number two is EMs that do not have the means to test or, or the level of organization to, to actively suppress. They may see a bigger epidemic, uh, especially concerning EMs in the southern hemisphere that are not going to benefit from the summer seasonality. Um, and uh, that, however, is going to mean that they'll go through it and uh, then they will not have a second wave. So they'll be, they'll be basically done in three to four months. Um, and um, in terms of shocks, obviously, the, the key, um, there are two key shocks relevant for EM. One is the oil shock and the other is the travel and tourism shock. Um, oil shock is fairly significant for a number of countries that have uh, larger than 20% of GDP uh, of oil revenues. These are Iraq, Oman, Qatar, Saudi. Uh, also, some countries stand between 10 and 20%, like Russia and Angola, are, quite, are going to be affected quite uh, significantly. Countries that have larger, that start with larger public sector deficits, like Kuwait, Bahrain, Oman, Nigeria, Saudi, they, they have more to worry about, Angola as well. And uh, most importantly, the countries that have very high debt to GDP, like Bahrain and Angola, about 100 percent, they're going to probably go to 140, 120, which means very high probability of default. Uh, but also some countries like Oman, Iraq, Qatar, which are going to be in the 80s uh, after this is done uh, concerning other countries that start with small levels, they'll probably have to issue quite a bit, like Saudis uh, and Nigeria. And uh, Russia is constrained on the Asian side, but probably their public, uh, public debt is going to rise from like uh, 18% to 30 uh, The The important thing about oil is that it's a positive transfer in terms of global saving to, to importers. That's good for Asia. Uh, and those countries have already suppressed efficiently. They have relatively uh, known economic costs. They are coming out of it. They're getting a big subsidy through oil. Uh, summer. So actually, I think it's a positive outlook on developed Asia into the summer. Um, the oil, I think, view is that this drop is going to be absolutely uh, destroying for any marginal expensive capacity. It's going to be much more vicious than the 2008-2016 drops. And there will be bigger capacity destruction, and uh, that will not come back uh, in 2021. So we're going to see substantial volatility in oil with a risk for much higher oil prices in 2021 when the global economy is in a very strong recovery. And at that time, countries that will be most severely affected will be Turkey and probably India. Turkey especially so because they have already used practically most of their reserves and swapped uh, with the bank. So, so it's, uh, they're running, starting to run negative reserves levels. 
tapping on the household savings in dollars which are in the banking system. Uh, the second shock is travel and tourism. The most affected countries there are Turkey, uh, Hungary, Greece, Mexico, uh, to, me, to, name, to name a few. They, they, they have between 5 and 8% of GDP and around uh, 7 to 10% of employment in tourism. So these shocks will be significant uh, this year. Um, now on policy response. On policy response, EM has cut rates together with the Fed and developed markets, uh, some, in some cases fairly aggressively. While I think inflation actually, even though it's suppressed at the moment from all oil prices, eventually will go up in yen, mostly driven by food and the weaker currencies. So the ex-ante real rates in yen are collapsing. This makes it more problematic for emerging market currencies to stabilize, especially given the context of credit defaults. And uh, we know that um, dollar debt in emerging market corporates has increased over the past decade. So I think that the outlook for emerging market currencies um, remains, uh, remains quite, quite challenging in the near term, especially given the size of the U.S. issuance. Um, the, the good news for EM is that the IMF is going to double the SDR allocations. This will give some uh, quick short-term support on uh, the most affected poor countries, uh, up to half of their quota on the, on the cheap uh, short-term disaster facilities. I'm not sure that this money will prevent uh, defaults in sub-Saharan Africa uh, on some of the oil-affected um, oil uh, sovereigns there, but will be Forrest, at, some, at some point. Of course, we'll I'm cutting you off. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, good. Our, our next speaker is David Costin. He's the Chief Equity Strategist at Goldman Sachs. Uh, let's hear about the bear market rally. Uh, well, can you hear me okay? Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So Larry asked, uh, asked me to speak about the bear market rally and uh, why investors should not get sucked into what uh, was just happened last week. We had an 18% rally. So here you are in, uh, in five minutes. So give me an extra minute of cushion there, Larry. Okay. So we've had the highest monthly vol in history. March of 2020. This month, almost over, two more trading days. The annual realized vol of 98 was above what you saw in 1987, above October of 1929, and above October of 2008. We had the best three-day rally since 1932, uh, up 18%. As I said earlier, we're still trading now 25% below the high. So put this in context. A lot of people on this call will remember 2008. There were eight. There were, excuse me, six distinct rallies lasting between one and six days. Uh, with the market rallying basically 10% or more. Uh, a couple of times, there were almost 20% rallies in October, November. Again, this is back in 08. Now, our mutual friend, David Shulman, who's probably listening to this call, will remember, we're just kidding, remember back in 1929 to 1932, you had 10 rallies of 10% or more uh, during a long uh, bear market. The median rally, 19 trading days, and bounced 23%. So these are some experiences in 08 and all the way back to the Great Depression when you had these big rallies, bear market rallies, in a, in a basically a secular market that was moving lower. So how do we think about this uh, going forward? Uh, there's no buybacks. Companies have basically had to pull away uh, for political reasons, for their own cash preservation reasons. No, no buybacks. It's been the number one source of demand for shares for 10 years. Uh, the news flow is going to continue to be bad. Companies are suspending their dividends. Uh, we don't get any corporate earnings for another month. And so while I remain bullish for some of the reasons that uh, our previous speakers spoke about from the Federal Reserve, 
while there's this enormous injection of cash, both on the fiscal side as well as on the Fed, in terms of their policy actions, those are all good. While the market rallies back to three, roughly 3,000 by the end of the year, I think tactically you need three things in order to get a bear market over and why the market go higher. First, we need to see a slowdown in the viral spread. Um, we saw what's happening in South Korea and China. We need to see some slowdown in the, uh, in the uh, rate of new cases and things like that. I'm not the epidemiologist. But basically, in my conversations with portfolio managers, there's a big argument. Some people think it's going to be happening within the next three to four weeks. Other people think it's going to be in their six, 12, 18 months. And so I think there needs to be some resolution on that debate for there to be a bottom, number one. Number two, you need to see some evidence of the fiscal policy working. You know, the monetary policy is working, particularly so in the commercial paper. We talked about this at last week's call. That was a key development. Uh, I want to see some of that fiscal policy kind of push into the uh, to the uh, you know, corporates and the uh, unemployment rate in particular. And finally, on the positioning and flows, uh, absent an improvement in fundamentals, the positioning remains overly bullish. Uh, we talked about this also last week, how fund managers were basically super long in February. They got modestly shorter, modestly, uh, in uh, two weeks ago and actually went up. They actually increased their positioning last week. That's inconsistent with what we see in the bottom of other troughs in March of 09, in October of 11, February of 16, December of 18, just a couple, you know, 18 months ago, uh, we still need to get uh, well below where we are today. So those are the reasons why, uh, and I think Harry Robinson just gave an excellent view on some of the strategic issues, but those are three reasons why we need to have more negative news till the market turns. Thanks, Larry. Terrific, David. Thank you. Uh, our next speaker is Vittorio Asaf. Uh, Vittorio is the founder and owner of the Serafina restaurant chain, uh, you've got 10 restaurants in New York City. Victoria, are you with us? Pardon me, all. this is the operator, uh, Mr. Asaf, is uh, connected to the call. But Mr. Asaf, could you please press star zero so we could locate your line? I tell you what, while we're having technical difficulties with Victoria, uh, let's go ahead with Joe Farrell. Joe is a uh, partner with Latham & Watkins in Los Angeles. Go ahead, Joe. All right. Thanks, Larry. Um, I'm going to speak briefly on uh, small businesses and employment as they're affected by the stimulus bills that we've uh, just seen enacted. Uh, there are two primary bills of interest to smaller employers, the Family First Coronavirus Response Act and the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act. The latter signed on Friday. Um, both were passed quickly. They've, they're going to be subject to a bunch of technical amendments, and there are a lot of administrative processes and regulations to be developed. Uh, so there's a bit of uncertainty around exactly how they work. Um, but the essence of what we've got are uh, paid leave benefits with tax credits for providing them, tax credits for employee retention against payroll taxes, uh, delay in payroll tax payment, uh, forgivable small business loans based on paying employees, uh, mortgages and rent, and unemployment expansion uh, for unemployed employees and uh, retirement fund access uh, for in, uh, individuals who are suffering from COVID-19. Um, starting with the paid leave benefit and the tax credit that goes with it, that's effective beginning on April 1st through the end of the year. It's going to apply to employers with less than 500 employees, uh, and the um, 
the rules uh, for counting that 500 will generally be just U.S. employees and will not count related companies unless there's extensive overlapping management, ownership, or control. Um, it allows leave for five primary purposes. Uh, one is individuals who are subject to a quarantine order. Uh, two is individuals whose healthcare providers directed them to self-quarantine. Uh, three is people suffering symptoms of COVID-19 and seeking medical diagnosis. People who are fourth is people who are caring for an individual who is either under quarantine uh, or um, medically unable uh, to take care of themselves. Uh, then fifth is for caring for an employee's son or daughter if that child uh, is uh, school or place of care is closed. And uh, then there's a sixth catch-all, which is to be developed by HHS. Uh, the amount of the benefit to be paid is 100% for those who are under quarantine, self-quarantine, or ill, uh, up to a cap of $511 for two weeks or 80 hours. Uh, for those who are taking care of children, uh, that benefit can go for up to 12 weeks. It is at two-thirds of regular pay capped at $200 per day. And for the group that is taking care of a, an ill relative, uh, that is also at two-thirds, but only for two weeks and capped at $200 a day. Um, employers will be able to claim a refundable credit on their payroll tax payments. So the idea here is that if you provide this to your employees, you will get fully reimbursed or offset um, by the federal government. The, now this uh, act does not apply to, uh, according to the Department of Labor, to employers who are closed if their employees can't work. So the quarantine orders here are really individual quarantine orders, not uh, shelter in place laws. The next provision I wanted to talk about under the CARES Act is a payroll tax credit that will apply uh, to businesses that are closed due to a government order. And that provides for a refundable tax credit of up to effectively $5,000, 50% of the first $10,000 of wages and benefit costs per employee that the employer provides during uh, the period of March 12th through December 31st. Um, this is um, also available to companies that aren't closed due to an order, but whose gross receipts declined by more than 50% compared to the same quarter in 2019. Uh, there are two different categories of employers here that, that qualify. One is employers of 100 or fewer full-time employees. They have no conditions on providing this uh, and getting the credit. For employers with 100 uh, or more full-time employees, uh, the wages paid to employees who are unable to work or not working are what are count against the tax credit. Um, <clears throat> there's also a delay in payroll tax payments uh, that will kick 50% uh, of the payroll tax into 2021 and another 50% into 2022. Uh, a big one for small employers is the Forgivable Small Business Administration Loan. And that is um, under the regular SBA program, but a lot of the restrictions have been lifted. The loans can be up to $10 million. 
they are limited by the size of payroll, two and a half times uh, payroll. Um, and the Joe, loans. Um, Barry, yes. Quick question for you. Sure. I mean, when I look at that loan forgiveness, is this effectively equal to a, eight weeks of payroll as a gift from the government? If you don't find that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yes, uh, you could view it that way. Basically, you can borrow enough money to pay eight weeks of payroll, and if you maintain your payroll, uh, you can get it all back uh, or, or have so it all this, forgiven. This would be a boon for almost every law firm who's not going to fire anybody. <laughs> well, if they qualify as a small business, and the small business is five hundred, generally five hundred employees or less, or fewer. I'm so sorry, smaller law firms. Fewer than five hundred employers uh, employees. And yeah, this, uh, you know, this can apply to a lot of small businesses. It's very attractive. The one thing that's worth noting is that um, private equity owned businesses are often disqualified by affiliate rules. So um, that will be a challenge there. If, um, if businesses are under common control, then you accumulate the number of employees and that often puts at least the substantial private equity firms, uh, their portfolio companies are out of this program. Justifiably so. Joe, thank you very much. Uh, Vittorio, yeah. have you been able to get on the line? Yes, sir. Hi, Larry. Hi, Vittorio. Go right ahead. Yes, Can, perfectly. Thank uh, you. Sir, Larry, thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Hi, everyone. My name is Vittorio Saf, and, and I'm the founder and owner of Serafina Restaurant Group based in New York. We have 10 locations in the city and many more around the world. I would like to share with you what it means to be a restaurant group owner in the midst of this crisis, and now he had uh, started to affect us already early in early stages. Looking back, it all happened so quickly. In just three to four weeks, uh, my entire operation was crippled. In Serafina, for example, we serve 600 to 1,000 people a day per restaurant, giving job to 60 to 100 employees per location. Our margins are very low, especially in the city, where employee costs uh, run at 40% and rent at 15%. Being an operator of quality Italian food for the past 25 years, at the volume we do, you can understand the intricate purchase algorithm that we have to put in place, in addition to the employee that has to be scheduled weeks in advance. You have to understand it is impossible to just hit the pause button uh, one day to the next. Therefore, when the business starts to slowing down and the government closes our restaurants one day to the next, our financial reserve um, uh, were almost wiped out. While perhaps we were able to reduce partially our food buying, it was impossible to reduce uh, employee shift, salary, taxes, occupancy, and all other fixed costs. Since the government took the decision to close all restaurants from Monday morning to Monday night, our, our industry really needs some, sign of, uh, some kind of lifeline. Uh, the way I see it in the approved stimulus plan, there is very little applicable to my New York City industry, with the exception of employee relief. From my point of view, we need better and universal level of protection, like suspending all the rent payment for six months, deferring all mortgages for six months, freezing utilities, freezing insurance payments, freezing all tax payments, and more importantly, the government should impose all the insurance companies to pay all business interruption claims to protect my industry. We had to let go of 1,000 employees, and believe me, it was heartbreaking. Honestly, I'm not sure how many of those employees, Serafina, in my case, will be able to hire back when all will restart. As you may know, 
China just reopened most restaurants, but the images are not exactly encouraging. Waiters are serving only table of two. They are wearing masks and gloves, and they have to leave an empty table on the right and an empty table on the right, effectively cutting down the seating capacity one-third of the restaurant. I'm not sure how many restaurants will survive because of the financial strain. I'm wondering if the new grant is insufficient, they will not be able to save any of us. However, Serafina is taking this time, this closure, as a critical opportunity looking inside our structure, our operation, trying to streamline each department and targeting food costs at 22% after the crisis. But the most challenging point will be how to reach an agreement with all our landlords, transforming all our leases in percentage-only lease, ideally 9% max, and agreeing with all of these landlords on a low minimum monthly rent guarantee. No one can predict when the economy will restart and how it will restart. However, it is reasonable to expect that our sales will be just about 40% or what they used to be before for at least the first two years. Thank you. Thank you for your Thank time. Thank you, Vittorio. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. You're welcome. Uh, very challenging times. Um, our next speaker is Keith Hennessy. Uh, Keith runs infrastructure for Bechtel. Keith, go ahead. Larry, thanks. Um, in terms of the overall outlook for the in infrastructure sector, as you might expect, we're seeing substantial delays in new capital projects um, uh, really globally, uh, as well as slowdowns and halts to existing construction projects. I'm going to comment on three major end markets to sort of illustrate the, the state of things. First, in the energy sector, um, the major oil and gas producers have been announcing uh, delays and, and cancellations in some cases of significant capital projects. Um, it's difficult to separate the effect of the uh, pandemic uh, from uh, what was a decline in oil and gas prices um, in the first place, uh, but you've got this compounding of, of the two at this point. Um, uh, two quick examples, Chevron's cut its capex for 2020 by 20% uh, from 20 billion to 16 billion, and Shell's cut its capex for the year by 5 billion uh, from 25 to 20 billion. Um, my company is actually building um, a large uh, polyethylene chemical plant in Pennsylvania for Shell. There's roughly 8,000 workers associated with the project. It's got a capital cost of approximately $6 billion. Um, that project was shut down uh, about a week and a half ago, really for health reasons. Um, and um, uh, while we haven't seen a lot of these kind of major projects completely shut down, we're, uh, we think we're going to see more uh, like that. I also want to make the point that it's quite complex because you've got um, local and state sort of level issues to deal with as well as federal. And then a company uh, like our customer in this case has its own requirements and types of concerns. And then as a builder, we have our own sort of health and safety related issues that we're dealing with. Um, in the LNG or the uh, liquefied natural gas space, um, there's been quite a few delays and cancellations. Um, um, you know, companies like Shamir, Tellurian, Next Decade have, have all uh, postponed or delayed things substantially. Um, and, and so the point I wanted to make about the energy sector is, is the major oil and gas producers have only just started to cut, uh, and there's a lot more that they could cut and, and will likely continue to do so. 
and the smaller and mid-sized producers, the more speculative companies, the, the developers, you know, have a rather very difficult, uh, rather bleak near and intermediate term outlook. Um, in the power sector, um, I want to comment on, on sort of independent power producers or the, or the non-utilities, because I think this illustrates sort of where the, the market really is. So, so first, um, on a positive note, uh, commercial banks are quite open to lend to uh, project uh, finance deals uh, for assets that have fully contracted revenues, so where there's an offtake contract of some kind to provide revenue protection. Um, the issue is getting those types of contracts in this environment is, is you know, difficult to say the least with all the uncertainty. Um, in the U.S., there were two solar power projects that closed in the last two, three weeks, and um, which is a very positive sign. Uh, however, there was a gas-fired power plant uh, where that project financing was pulled from the market. Um, to kind of illustrate uh, the market, um, uh, if you look at a non-regulated market like Texas, where there's actually trading of prices, you can see that the power prices, spot power prices, are down about 20, 30 percent. And the forward curve, you know, once you get out past a year, is off a couple percent, but not that much. So the, the, even though there's not a lot of liquidity in a market like that, the investors still are actually looking out sort of through this, this trough, which is a positive thing. Um, just to interrupt you for a second. What, um, you mentioned that Shell chemistry, chemical plant with 8,000 employees in Pennsylvania. Um, did it shut because of the, the virus? Um, will they restart it as soon as you know the virus clears up, or is it shelved because of economic reasons? The plant doesn't make sense anymore. It, sh it, it, it was temporarily shut specifically for concerns around the virus and a desire to make sure that the workplace was as safe um, uh, for all the workers as possible. There was a lot of concerns by local officials and also workers. Uh, the idea was to literally clean up parts of the site to put different things in place. Um, and then to restart it. Uh, it's not yet restarted, but the plan is to restart it. Um, so I that, suspect that doesn't restart. sound that bad. Um, it, it, so Shell was did not. So Shell has not put has not stopped work because of cash flow concerns or something like that. It was very much around health around the site. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, the, the other point I wanted to make about power um, is I think that we could see something structural really accelerate. Um, there, there has been a shift uh, from fossil power generation to renewable power, um, and this has been a secular trend we've seen in the last uh, five to ten years. Uh, and, I, and I think uh, that this could really accelerate through this sort of um, uh, disruption in, in, the, in the market. Um, I would just note that the, uh, at least the folks I talked to, uh, not, uh, I might be a bit out of consensus on this, but I think you're going to see a lot of, sort of pension fund type investors who will start to accelerate shifting money out of, out of fossils. Um, in transportation, a number of these sectors have just been really hard hit. So aviation is sort of an obvious one. A lot of capital projects have been canceled and delayed. Um, there's a, there is a distinction between privately owned assets. So in, in places like in Europe, um, there's quite a few privately owned airports. So those folks have real cash flow issues. Um, in other places where you have government ownership, you're, you're um, just seeing substantially less volume. Same thing is true in the rail sector. Um, you know, for those of you who live in New York, think of New Jersey Transit or the MTA. 
Um, they're experiencing uh, serious uh, shortfalls in their revenue, which is uh, which is a primary funding source for those those types of assets. And we're seeing this play out in a whole variety of countries. Um, when you think about motorways or highways, obviously traffic is down, um, and uh, I am sure we'll see uh, quite a few privately owned toll roads that'll experience severe liquidity challenges. Um, overall, municipalities, states are seeing kind of a dramatic decline in revenue sources from transportation user fees, which is going to contribute to broader shortfalls at the state and local level. Um, and um, most, in, I would point out that most infrastructure in the United States is owned at the state and local level and is financed at the state and local level through the municipal bond market. Uh, Larry, just two quick thoughts um, uh, to wrap it up. Um, first, U.S. non-residential construction. Uh, if you look back at 2008, uh, non-residential construction peaked in September of 08 and then declined for over two years until January of 2011, uh, a, a uh, peak to trough drop of roughly 30 percent, um, uh, and so that that occurred o uh, over a, a, a two-year-plus period. Uh, and then second, uh, prospects for a large infrastructure spending bill. Uh, many people are optimistic that Congress will come together uh, to pass some kind of infrastructure spending bill. Uh, the point I would make here is, uh, if there is legislation, you know, I'm not sure how quickly this kind of money can really be put effectively into the economy. So I think the impact will certainly be delayed, uh, and I don't know how efficient it would be. Um, if we think back to 2009, uh, there was roughly $100 billion in the Recovery Act that was spread across energy, power, transportation, water, and other infrastructure areas. I think the impact of that was very much dissipated or spread out. And I'm not convinced that we really saw much of a multiplier effect as much of it went to essentially cover deferred maintenance or even cover operating losses. Uh, there is real need in the infrastructure space for investment. Um, um, but you know, ultimately, this will become a question of sort of political uh, prioritization. Thank you, Keith. Uh, LB? Uh, yep, thanks, LB. That's it. Uh, our next speaker is Rob Kurzban. Uh, Rob has spoken to our book club twice. He's the author of Everyone Else is a Hypocrite and a Moral Psychologist. Go ahead, Rob. Thanks, Larry. Um, yeah, so I'm going to be coming at this, of course, from a psychological perspective, so a little different from the uh, views we've been hearing so far, which are largely economic. Um, so I'm interested in morality, and I, I think we're starting to see a little bit more um, coverage right now of psychological issues. Um, we're seeing some stuff about mental health, and I'm, I'm interested in... Um, what I, what I see is a real danger that it maybe isn't on the same scale as some of these economic issues, but still could be important. So I'm interested in moral panic. So this is when you have some phenomenon um, and a population starts to fear that there's all of this stuff going, going on in the population. And so the classic examples are things like the Salem witch trials where, you know, people thought there was witchcraft going on, practicing their dark arts, consorting with the devil or whatever it is. And, you know, people started to see it everywhere. And along with this, and this is the important part, came this real thirst for punishment. The feature of human psychology is that we're very moralistic creatures, right? When we see what we think is something that's going wrong, uh, a moral wrong, we, we like for people to be punished. So and these happen all the time, right? So uh, in American history, right, we have McCarthyism in more recent history. Um, uh, maybe I'm showing my age, but I remember when my mom used to tell me that all of my neighbors were putting razor blades and apples when I went out trick-or-treating and we had to be worried about them. And 
Um, and then more recently, there were, you know, allegations of childhood sexual abuse, um, and uh, you know, this was so supposedly going on everywhere. So in all these cases, lives are lives, careers, families are destroyed, right? In the recent history, this has been, you know, I'm more familiar with the left, uh, worries about racism everywhere, sexual harassment is everywhere, transphobia is everywhere. Don't get me wrong, these things exist. There really were communists during the McCarthy era. What moral panics do is they magnify these. Human psychology is extremely uh, excited to, to get up in arms, to get irate uh, about other people's behavior. Um, and again, I think the, well, the piece that we're going to need to worry about down the line is th this intuition that people ought to be um, punished for engaging in these either uh, real or imagined offenses. And I, I kind of watched up close uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, I think, you know, to give a couple examples of this, you know, two weeks ago, going out to dinner was, you know, just sort of normal and maybe even a virtuous sort of thing to do. Um, and then, you know, it became dangerous because of issues of transmission. And, you know, I'm a little bit maybe too much of a consumer of social media trying to keep my pulse on the or keep my finger on the pulse of psychology around the country, around the world. You know, you started seeing people saying that, you know, these people who were going out to dinner were akin to murderers. You know, this kind of very moralistic language that was being applied to this behavior. Um, and my prediction is that there was going to be lots of different ways in which you, we have moral panics moving forward. I mean, the, the current crisis is sort of accentuating everything about human psychology, everything from you're, you're seeing this hoarding behavior, um, you're, you're seeing all sorts of fear, and that's, that's, that's normal. Um, but along with it comes these, un, these sort of even less pleasant consequences. My, my guess is that the first place we're going to start seeing this is is in masks. So, I, you know, right now being seen with a mask outside, I, I've seen this on social media. People say, look, unless you have, if you have the disease, then going out with a mask is um, terribly wrong because you can spread the disease. Um, and if you don't have the disease, then you shouldn't be out in the first place. And so, you know, you have this kind of clamoring about people who are out there. I think probably within the next few weeks, uh, we're going to start seeing people clamoring about people who are not wearing masks. And this is going to be seen as a moral wrong of the first order, and there's going to be posts to social media and to Facebook and to neighbors, and there's going to be, you know, maybe not a quest for, for blood, but certainly there's going to be a, a, a sort of an interest in whatever kinds of social sanctions can be imposed by that person's employer, if they still have one, by the community, by the parents, so on. And, uh, you know, my comment really is, is for this audience, just a request to keep an eye on this, both at the individual level and the community level. These tend to be bandwagoning processes, right? So, you know, a very innocent remark or behavior, um, if it gets called out, as the kids are saying these days, can attract a kind of a dog pile on that individual. Again, social media, even in the, in the media in general, um, that can take something from having been a, you know, perhaps an oversight or something that was, you know, a, a mistake or what have you into something which ruins a life. And, and that becomes that person's life, right? That, oh, that's Fred. You've already seen this again in the context of the spring breaker, right? So this one person who said, ah, coronavirus or not, maybe I get up, maybe I won't. Um, I'm going to go party. Now, probably what that person did was not the wisest of things, but my guess is that for the rest of his life, at least for the next five, 10 years, that's who he is and is in virtue of how much people like piling on these moral wrongs. So all I'm asking or sort of saying at this point is we should be aware of this in our own behavior and in how these processes are playing out in our community. I'm, uh, you know, predictions right now are 
per, perhaps more fraught than ever, but I'm willing to go out on a limb and say, we are going to be seeing some moral panics and this is just going to make a bad situation worse. Thanks. Perfect, Rob. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Angus Deaton. Uh, he is a professor of economics at Princeton and recently won the Nobel Prize. Go ahead, Angus. Hi, can you hear me? Perfectly, thank you. Good, thank you. Um, last week, we have a very bad time to publish a book. Aaron Case and I published a book called Dots of Despair and the Future of Capitalism, in which we argue that the long-term slow-motion collapse of work and wages and community for working-class Americans is the root of the cause of the epidemic of drug overdose, suicide, and alcoholism. Now, people have been using that in Washington um, or using language very like that to claim that the lockdown will be a disaster and that the lockdown will lead to hundreds of thousands of deaths of despair as people lose their livelihoods and as incomes fall and we plunge into a recession. That argument is wrong, and I want to just say a few words why. It's certainly true that people with less money die younger than people with more money. Um, one recent study showed that people in their mid-40s in the top 1% of taxable income have about 15 more years to live than people in the bottom 1% of taxable income. Our work shows that all the deaths of despair, the suicides and drug overdoses have happened to people who do not have a four-year bachelor degree. If you do have one, you're pretty much exempt from all that. Nevertheless, it's just not true that when people get poorer in a faltering economy over the business cycle, they become more likely to die. And the reason for that is that the deaths of despair took a long time to happen, and it's not like the up and down of the business cycle. Now, of course, if this epidemic destroys the economy on a permanent basis, that'll be a very serious matter. But if it um, bombs the economy for a while and then we come out of it, you know, six months, a year, two years later, then it's much more like what has happened in recessions in the past. So we can look at past recessions. Now, of course, every recession is different. This recession is perhaps more different than most. Um, but nevertheless, we have very consistent evidence that mortality rates go up um, in boom times and go down in recessions. So if you think the recession we're already in and it's going to last for a while is even slightly like previous recessions, we would expect mortality to fall, um, not to rise. The first demonstration of this was published in the U.S. in 1920. The authors thought it was so absurd that it was clear they didn't even believe their own results. But it's been repeated um, over and over again in different countries, in different time periods. During the Great Depression, um, mortality went down, life expectancy attained its um, short-term peak um, in the midst um, of the Great Depression. It's true in England and Wales. One example you might like to think of is Greece. Remember Greece, its economy is so devastated that it threatened to crash out of the Eurozone in the financial crisis. In the U.S., it was used as a bogeyman, the perennial warning of what might happen to us if we didn't get our fiscal house in order. Unemployment in Greece and Spain more than tripled to the point where more than a quarter of the population was unemployed. Yet Greece and Spain saw increases in life expectancy after the Great Recession 
that were among the best um, in Europe. Why is uh, that, do you think, so why, why, is, why does life expectancy increase because of a recession? Well, I was going to say that. Um, I think what happens is that what the, um, there are a lot of injuries, for instance. Um, injuries go down when people are not working so hard, um, when they're not driving around in the roads um, on huge numbers. Um, people have more time to look after other people. Um, there's much greater availability of minimum wage workers for care homes and nursing homes to look after the elderly. And there are good studies showing that that is a big effect. Um, the qualification is that suicide always goes in the opposite direction, that suicide does get worse um, during um, recessions. Um, and the famous stories of the Great Depression and people writing, jumping off bridges and buildings, probably not true, but nevertheless, depressions do increase suicide. But suicides last year were only 2% of all deaths. Um, each one is a tragedy, but it takes a very large change in suicides before the suicide tail wags the mortality dog. Um, it's accidents, it's stress, um, it's more free time. People have more time for exercise, for healthy meals and self-care, and they have more time to look after other people. But, you know, we don't really know that for sure. What we do know is the net effect over and over again in recessions after recessions um, has been good for all-cause mortality. Not good for suicide, and it might well be that this um, um, recession with all the social isolation that it's going to involve um, may make suicides worse. Um, suicides are strongly associated with social isolation. It's also true that a lot of people who try to kill themselves get saved by going to a hospital in time. That may be very difficult in this recession if the hospitals get um, completely um, stressed out. Um, social distancing may bring more suicides. Um, the counterexample, however, is that suicides tend to be below in wartime, especially when leaders can build social solidarity, um, the opposite of social isolation. Think of Winston Churchill inspiring the British in World War II, Andrew Cuomo is trying to do the same in New York. Um, and if the rhetoric of fighting the common enemy wins out against the possibility that Americans are jobless, alone, terrified, and without meaning in their lives, then even suicides could be low in the months ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Angus. Um, all right, so that ends our formal discussion. Um, I'm going to open up for Q&A in just a second among the speakers. You can email Alan Schaffron or me with your questions. Um, in the meantime, I wanted to have a quick discussion with Alan and Victor about the survey that I sent out to all you guys uh, in advance. Um, I'm going to highlight some of the observations that I had about the survey results, and then I want to get Victor's uh, thoughts on the survey as well. So I'll, I'll start out. Um, I guess... What I noticed, first of all, is that people were slightly more pessimistic than last week. Uh, it was net 16 out of 116 when I looked last. Um, you know, given that the stock market had one of its best weeks in, you know, in our lifetime, I was surprised to see that people were a little bit more optimistic. It appears that people were worried about the increased death rates and uh, the decline in employment. Um, most people in the survey thought that suitable treatments will be available in just three to six months. Um, vaccines continue to be thought of as coming about in 12 to 18 months. People think that we'll have enough ventilators in around four months. Um, 
people think that there will be no large gatherings for three to six months, but in one to three months we will have small social gatherings. Um, people also felt that the elderly will become the only people quarantined after just a few months from now. Um, nearly everyone thought that the $2 trillion stimulus plan would be insufficient and that more stimulus would be on the way. Um, most people think that the GDP will be down around 5 to 10% this year. Um, a number of our surveyors put their toe in the water this week and bought some stock. Maybe that's why equities are up so much. Um, I was very surprised at how varied uh, our equity holdings are. Um, most people, only 20% of our surveyors had 60% of their wealth in equities. Uh, generally, it was across the map from 10% to 90%, almost equally weighted. Um, most people only had between 0 and 20% of their investments in fixed income. Um, I was surprised that people estimated their equity exposure so well. I know that I made a number of mistakes, but I guess I was almost unique in that regard. Uh, most people thought that um, we would be more like South Korea than Italy in terms of our death rates. Um, there was absolutely no agreement on how many people would get the virus. Uh, we were equally weighted from under a million people to over 50 million. So I would say as a group, we have no idea we are going to get sick. Um, the group was evenly split um, whether or not we, the FDA would approve a vaccine that before we knew it was safe. Um, Trump had a bit of a small comeback this week, where last week um, 75% thought that Biden would win. Today it was down to only 57%. Uh, I think a group may be biased. I looked through the individual responses Almost all the Republicans surveyed thought Trump would win, and almost all the Democrats thought that uh, Biden would win. Um, I guess I'll leave it at that. Uh, Vic, what were some of your thoughts on the on the survey? Well, you you covered them pretty well. I mean, in terms of some places where you know it was interesting relative to market pricing, um, you know, like the bookies have Trump as a slight favorite to win, so they're probably you know the um, bookies are more like fifty five forty five for Trump. And our group is more like um, um, 45, 55. 50, yeah. Um, yeah, but not, not a big one. Uh, also, it was really interesting that, you know, uh, it would have been interesting to ask the question about if people have changed their allocations, you know, say since uh, the end of February in terms of in investment portfolios. But, yeah, it was kind of interesting that uh, the answers seemed, uh, you know, a little bit more bearish. Um, and yet people were generally um, adding and, all, you know, even the answer like about what's the expected low of the S&P, like there were a lot of people thinking, you know, 1800 and lower in the next three months, which is, um, you know, in terms of sort of using a first touch uh, sort of option price on that, you know, that's really, you know, expecting, a, expecting higher volatility than the market is or being more bearish than um, than sort of, mar you know, expecting the market price to not be quite the right price. But, yeah, I thought the, I thought the uh, survey was, was uh, really fascinating. I hope that everybody who's on the call and participated in it can see the, um, can see the results. It was, it's really just fascinating to look. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a gift to have had so many people take the time to share their thoughts with it, you know, in terms of uh, the wisdom of crowds. I think that was pretty uh, pretty nice to have this, both for this week and last week. Um, opening up to the group uh, now for some questions, uh, my first comment is to Rob Kurzban. So, Rob, as part of our questions asking if people are wearing masks, to your point about uh, mask wearing, 
only 7% of this audience that you're talking to right now uh, wears masks, leaving 93% of us who don't. Um, so w would you say your expectation is that we're going to move towards a mask-wearing world? Yeah, that's exactly my expectation. I think, you know, CDC denied that they're going to have new guidance on masks, uh, I think, yesterday. Um, my guess is they're going to revisit that. I mean, you know, the, the, the combination of the facts that many people have the virus but are asymptomatic, um, you know, we, with, with the, you know, interest in ending the quarantine, you put those together and you sort of want everyone to wear a mask to reduce the probability of transmission. And then you look at what's going on in Asia. M my guess is it's going to become normative. And then the only question is, you know, how broadly and for how long, you know, I know there's people on here who might be looking for what to do with some capital, but designer masks are going to be a, a big deal down, down the line, my guess is, because people are going to have them and they're going to want them to match their sports preferences and their clothes. And, and, uh, you know, I do, I do think they're going to, it's going to be moralized. And I, that's, you know, it, who knows, but that would be my guess. Yeah. Peggy, this is a question for you. Um, we haven't seen any evidence necessarily that the masks are very helpful from a medical perspective. Um, how do you think that'll play into the decision of whether people use the masks? Well, I think that the, the data does show that the masks can have some utility in a known patient with active disease and reducing spread to others, less utility in protecting the average person from exposure. It depends on what kind of mask you're wearing. You've probably all heard the discussion of the N95 versus the more traditional surgical mask. The N95 has, a, has to be fitted, and it, it really creates more of a seal, including with a little metal clip on the nose. Um, and those, those are going to be more protective. They're in shorter supply, and it's hard to make designer N95s as much as the other type, but I'm sure people will do it. I think people will wear masks because it makes them feel better. And I think, you know, one of the things about this kind of an outbreak is that it is an invisible killer, as the president likes to say. Um, you don't know who has it and you don't know where you might get it. And so um, as people start to move out more into public spaces, I think people will, whether the science supports it or not, um, people will probably want to wear masks, um, and especially when you don't know, you know, who might be infected. Peggy, how many, we, I asked the question in our survey, how many Americans they thought would get the virus, um, and we were evenly distributed across literally under a million, between 10 million, 20 million, 50 million, 100 million. No one had any idea. What, what do you think is the number of people who will uh, who will get this virus in the long run? Well, I think, you know, how many people are infected will be quite high, and I would put it probably at higher than the numbers that you said. How many people will actually become um, significantly ill will be much smaller. I think, you know, unfortunately, we don't know what the background rates are, but I think there is reason to believe that we had community spread long before we realized that while we were still trying to do the containment strategy with limited testing. Um, and so I think, you know, people have been exposed and, and been infected, but had asymptomatic or very mild uh, courses. But we, we just really don't know until we know, and we won't know until um, we, we have more ability to, to assess 
um, the community rates of spread and we'll know a lot more uh, In the last from, call, Peggy, uh, Myron Schultz was talking about whether or not we should do a, a, a proper public health um, survey. In other words, testing a thousand random people and determining how many actually have been exposed, uh, how many how many already show antibodies, and then kind of do, continually doing thousand random person surveys to understand the growth, uh, to better Absolutely. understand the symptomatic people. Why do you suppose um, this wasn't a protocol that the CDC or FDA had already implemented? Well, the CDC proposed it long ago, but they didn't have the test kits to make it a reality. The CDC proposed, um, you know, maybe as much as a month ago, I don't know, maybe maybe longer, um, uh, doing um, uh, just some sentinel surveillance, choosing particular communities spread across the country and just doing routine testing, but they couldn't, they couldn't uh, support that with with, what about um, in some of the other countries? Is China doing it? Is South Korea doing it? Is Japan doing it? Is Italy doing it? UK? Um, you know, it has been done in some isolated um, uh, settings. It hasn't been a, a mass undertaking. But, you know, for example, there was a, a community in Italy that a relatively small uh, town, I think it was called Bari, but I'm, I, I'm not sure, but where they tested everyone. Um, the problem is I can't remember what the findings were, but, um, but I think, you know, that they did find, you know, some significant community spread without any recognition from those that were positive that they'd had the disease. Do you think there's going to be this tension in our society between letting people go back to work, maybe quarantining only the elderly, um, and a desire to flatline the, um, curve. Um, do you think it's worth it? Is it worth to flatten the curve and, and have a, such a severe recession or depression? Um, will, it make a, will it make that big a difference on life? Well, I think, you know, we have to do this in a systematic and science-based way as possible. You know, right now, number one, we are fully into a commitment to flattening the curve with the social distancing and have taken the hit on the economy. And I think it would be, you know, sort of a double loss to pull back now um, when we know we're not in a position uh, to, uh, you know, really uh, in a strategic way manage ongoing infection spread and the patient's who need care and are starting in, in our, our hotspots to overwhelm uh, the healthcare system. So I think, you know, we're so, going to have... But when do you pull back? I mean, it's, when can a, a public official in, in good conscience and get, not get screamed at? Won't he o always be ultimately very conservative in his decision? And it... Well, I think we, we do have to gradually move away from a reliance on physical distancing as our primary tool for controlling future spread. We have to have better data to identify areas of spread and the rate of exposure and immunity in the population. Uh, we, we, we have to make sure that our, our public health and local healthcare systems are sufficiently intact um, to be able to manage. And, um, you know, and hopefully we may have some therapeutic, um, either prophylactic, um, uh, or or 
uh, treatment um, therapies that will, you know, enable us to manage better while we're still waiting for uh, the vaccine, which is going to, you know, really be what we need over the longer term. But, um, you know, there have been various strategies proposed. One is identifying hot spots and cold spots in the country and letting the cold spots, uh, you know, sort of resume. That's not really realistic because we know that you can, a cold spot can become a hot spot as cases um, move into that area and spread. So that's why testing is important. So we, we can actually know what's going on and not just look at how many declared cases uh, exist right now. The antibody test that I mentioned will be beneficial because it will give us a, an opportunity to really know who's been exposed and, and, and who has had it, cleared the virus, and now um, presumably has immunity. And as we know more about that, we'll have a much better sense of you know, what's called herd immunity in a community um, uh, where there are enough people that have been exposed to, to limit spread. And with more testing, we can, can follow a strategy where you identify people, isolate them, contact trace, which was how we began with, with a smaller number of cases, but quickly got overwhelmed. But you could go back to that and manage the return to the workplace and to um, you know, a more normal uh, social um, circumstance than we currently have. But it, but we're going to have to do it in stages, and it does depend on on making sure that we have a few more things in place, I think. And we also have to watch, you know, nobody really quite knows how this novel coronavirus is going to behave going forward. You know, there's hopes that have been expressed about seasonality. There, there are hopes that, you know, perhaps it will mutate to a, a slightly less aggressive virus in terms of transmission patterns and uh, lethality. So, you know, this is, this is a novel virus and we're not many months into our experience with it. So there are no clear absolute answers. Okay. Uh, my next question is from Michael Moscow. Um, we had a question from one of our uh, survey, uh, people in the audience they were worried about how the Fed would lend money to small businesses, uh, how they would be able to uh, worry about conflict of interest, particularly as it relates to direct lending to many corporations. Uh, how, how can the Fed deal with its conflict problems? Well, there's, they haven't set up the program for small businesses yet, but, but uh, the pattern that they've used in the past for loans or guarantees is that they don't do it directly themselves. They set up a special uh, entity, special vehicle, and they provide the funds to this special vehicle, and then that vehicle makes these decisions. They've used BlackRock in the past, and they're actually announced this week they're going to use BlackRock here to actually look at the, um, the collateral that the small businesses would have and the viability, not, not the small businesses, of the large businesses, and the viability of these businesses, and they would, uh, BlackRock, actually be making the decisions. You, you commented also about municipalities, some of them had already gotten into trouble in the past. 
um, there's always been this tension where states and localities want to be bailed out by the feds and where, the, you know, where President Ford said to New York, drop dead. Um, will that, how will we deal with that conflict between the state and local governments who are under a lot of stress right now and the desire by the Fed to let them succeed or fail on their own? Well, this is a real key question, and it's one that concerns me, particularly since I am a, a resident of Illinois, uh, where the state has significant problems and the city has significant financial problems. We know that cities can go bankrupt. States cannot go bankrupt. So, the, I mean, there's, there's first the possibility that, um, and I certainly hope this doesn't happen, but the possibility that states or municipalities would come to the Congress and ask for loans from the Congress or grants or some form of financial assistance. The second is that they do it sort of a backdoor way, coming to backdoor way, coming to the Fed, which the, with the new authority that the Fed has, and they they do it to get loans uh, from from the Federal Reserve. Uh, but the loans, um, you know, they they sort of the money is all fungible, so that the money isn't necessarily going to be all used for dealing with problems that stem from the coronavirus, but will be used to deal with the, the structural deficits that they have. And this would be, in my judgment, a very undesirable event. Um, I hope that the, and there'll be enormous political pressure here, uh, as we know. So I think it's going to be very important that uh, this be monitored closely. I think the Fed will be very concerned about it, um, but nevertheless, it's going to be very important to have it monitored very closely and be very transparent. Uh, next question uh, to Mike Kinetter. Mike, one of our audience members uh, was very concerned about um, small tuition-dependent colleges, um, which probably don't have the financial resources to survive a 20% decline in enrollment. How do you think this is going to play for those smaller colleges? Mike Delusion. All right, well, why don't I move ahead? I have a next question is for Harry Robinson. Um, in the past, you've described some industries as battleships that, that are hard to turn off and turn on. Um, how do you think that if some of these industries make large-scale cuts um, to production, will they be able to get back in line and stay the course, or will they have a, a call it an intermediate-term decline? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the natural resources industries, they're, I think they're slower to just drop capacity out because when you demobilize, a, whether it's an oil field or a mine, turning it back on is really hard. So I think they're unfortunately going to, you know, work their way slowly down uh, and, until companies get sort of knocked out of business or operations get so cash flow negative that they have to close them down, which means that they'll just delay getting reset to the current level of demand that the downstream customers need. Um, so I, I don't see, you know, much optimism there for, you know, quicker, faster cuts because there's just not, there's pressure for it. But until the companies have absolute conviction that they're going to be in a, a materially down for longer environment with their end use customers, it's their it's the wise choice for them to try to just high grade their existing operations and keep at least sort of cash flow break even or minimal losses going. Hey, Larry. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, 
yeah, I think there is going to be a big shakeout in a lot of the four-year degree granting uh, tuition-reliant institutions. Um, and I think in the end, we'll get a lot better value for families and consumers in that part of the market. Um, and I think the survivors will be ones that can begin to deliver some of their content on digital platforms uh, with a mix of in-person and certain locations will still thrive uh, if they're near a lot of potential students who can commute and also if they have really desirable real estate. You know, I don't think Colorado College is going to go anywhere, um, but I think the rest of the industry could feel a lot of stress. Okay. Uh, David Costin, I got a question from Myron Schultz for you. Um, you. You talked about these patterns in 2008 and 1929 to 1933, and he was wondering why you think those patterns are uh, similar and indicative. Why why aren't stock prices a little bit more random than that? Why do we have to follow these same bear market rally-like patterns? I think is the nature of the question. Uh, well, I don't have to follow the pattern necessarily. Uh, it's an interesting pattern in 2008. I would say more fundamentally, it took. Uh, months for some of the uh, Fed programs that they now were imp implemented within days. Uh, so I think it probably took a longer time for that to uh, take place, which is why I think you got more of the the the, the episodes. Um, I suppose it is. I think of it as a fundamental backdrop, but I thought as a as a precedent or as an experience that most people can relate to. Uh, what took place in these uh, in 2008 in particular um, was uh, there's some parallels now. Obviously, the coronavirus is unique as opposed to the kind of the financial and more structural bear market. This is more event driven. And last week I talked about there was other event driven uh, episodes and kind of how fast the market fell and and also how rapidly it uh, actually came back, which is still part of the part of the forecast. This is how I think about it. David, also, um, Harry Robinson sort of laid out a, a possibility that the center case for McKinsey sounded like a much deeper and much longer-dated recession that, that at least our survey has suggested or maybe even Goldman Sachs has suggested. If we don't get back to full recovery by in three years, you know, wh what will that do to the equity markets? Uh, so our baseline forecast is we get uh, back sometime by two, the, toward the end, very end of twenty. 21 and early part of 2022, the, the economy basically comes back. And I guess the general view, or the view is, you got $2 trillion stimulus. Depends I want to exactly measure that, but let's use that as an example. It's a $22 trillion economy, so it's almost 10%. Uh, figure that most of that is playing through at some point by the third quarter, uh, which is why I expect a pretty sharp re recovery or, or economic expansion, I should put it that way, in terms of growth. And uh, in the second half of this year, but uh, I would agree. I mean, Harold laid out a reasonable case for why it takes a lot longer. Um, and certainly, I think at the end of the day, it's a medical question, and how just goes back to the, a lot of the Peggy's points, et cetera, about is this uh, something we get a handle on in some way, shape, or form in the next couple of months, or uh, you know, longer lasting, or do we have a second bout of this in the fall, kind of like the Spanish flu in, in 1918? So. Um, I guess that's so. That's the thought process. That if it takes a lot longer, I come back to your question. If it takes a lot longer for it to come back. Well, that's definitely uh, a a recipe for less less profit growth 
less, you know, more companies delaying capital spending, uh, delaying rehiring people, uh, companies basically taking a zero-based budgeting approach, if you want to think of it in that context, and basically scaling all the way back. And that's, uh, that would be akin to, you know, another d- depression, basically. Um, because our unemployment rate will go to, uh, you know, to closer to 10, we're expecting it to be something like 9%, 10% relatively soon. And that would not come back, uh, Larry, so that's how I think about it. It would be, it'd be bad for those with big, with big allocation equities in the portfolio. Vittorio, I have a question for you if you're still on the line. Um, Andy Bloom mentioned that he thought that... Yes, I'm here. I'm here. Sorry. So uh, earlier, Andy Bloom was suggesting that the landlords are going to have to negotiate with these restaurants on leases. Have you um, spoken with your landlords yet? Are they open-minded, or is it going to be a fight? Uh, I, I approach all of them, obviously, but I, I feel it will be the challenging, uh, the challenging part of the aftermath will be to negotiate a settlement with all of them. It's been to renegotiate all of those leases, and they have to be based on percentage of sales. As we don't know the level of sales we're going to reach in the first year after the reopening, uh, I think the maximum level of possible would be 9% of sales, and, and the minimum guarantee should be lower. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Andy, the, are you still on the, the line? Definitely the level of rent uh, pre-crisis, uh, they don't exist anymore. Yeah, I'm, I'm still on. Um, I mean, anecdotally, you know, we've received requests already from uh, uh, tenants requesting uh, rent relief. Uh, we're asking a fair number of questions to make sure it's, people that really need it versus those that are just trying to take advantage of the situation. Uh, but, 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 uh, obviously retail is its own special case and is, is in a very difficult position. Um, but so we're taking, in particular, in particular because of the number of employees that we have compared to just a conventional retail. Yeah, restaurants, I agree, are in a particularly difficult position. Um, I mean, to the extent that that, uh, in our own case, you know, I'm basically telling people that, you know, let people pay half their rent and the the other half will defer until they can pay it, in essence. So I think you'll see a lot of that going on as well. But you can defer. Victoria was asking for more than that. He's asking for... Uh, basically sharing in the equity of the space. You know, he was saying that if you can only seat a third of the people or um, yeah, you can only close. Seat, uh, initially, at least, uh, you can only seat one table every three and only table of two. And in an environment where the waiter will, uh, will wear a mask and gloves, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's going to be very difficult. For the first year or two years, it's going to be very difficult. I, I don't disagree with that. I, I'm a little more optimistic in the in you know three four months from now. But uh, certainly restaurants will need help with their rent. That's for sure. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah. If if the volume of business uh, will top uh, at the most forty percent of what used to be before, all the rent will have to be somehow adjusted to that level of uh, income. 
of course the pay. I mean, no one's right. gonna, no, no one's replacing those restaurants, so it's not like there's someone that you can fill that space in. So uh, with, so I, I assume the landlords will will work closely with the restaurant tours. Um. Uh, Angus Deaton, we got a question uh, from someone in the audience, Chris Renati, who's spends a lot of time with the poor and working class communities, also people who are addicted and homeless. Um, how do you yep. think that the poor, the working class, and, and, and the homeless people would deal in this crisis? It's very hard to tell. Um, one of the things we've certainly worried about, um, you mentioned addiction. Um, one of the worst possible things for um, people who are in recovery is isolation. And the churches and AA and so on um, work very hard to get people out of isolation. Um, it's clear also that the lots of people who've already lost their jobs, we've talked about um, food workers in the service industries, um, they're certainly going to do very badly. Um, there are also um, a lot of people who lost their ins- who've lost their health insurance um, as of the end of this month. And some of those could be picked up by Obamacare, but many of them are in states where there is no Obamacare, and it's not clear what's going to happen. I think there's a real risk here of really severe social crisis if hundreds of thousands of people are facing recovery bills of $30,000 from hospitals or if pharma companies come up with drugs that they try to sell at enormous rates as their lobbyists are trying very hard to make sure happens. Um, As a follow-up, you know, one of the interesting things when you spoke to our, our book club um, you came out um, more supportive of the smoking habit than I expected. You thought it was something that we should um, you know, not stigmatize and uh, smokers. It seems to me that one of the negative repercussions of smoking is that it makes you more susceptible to the virus. Have you thought about the issues yes. of smoking? No, I haven't thought about that. Um, when I talked to your book club, I was thinking about somewhat different issues that by stigmatizing smoking and taxing it at very high rates, um, we'd been very good extracting money from poor people um, and moving it up the chain, as it were. Um, this will make it even worse. Um, that they're more susceptible to die if they get the disease. Um, does any of the fellow speakers want to ask another speaker a question? I guess not. All right. I guess with that, I'd like to thank all the participants for for speaking and everyone for listening in at home. Um, Thank you so much. I think it was very successful. Um, Have a great week. Thank you.